as I was just about to say, and this is just proving a point, I guess, is uh, between my mic issues and the scheduling issues with the visit from the Philippines, I am learning to hold loosely to my plans, including as to which mic I will use. But what a blessing it is that we can hold loosely to these plans and leave them in the hand of a God who knew all of this beforehand, who organized all of it beforehand, and who is faithful to guide and direct our steps even as we recalibrate after a change of plans. So, now we get to worship together this morning in the preaching of God's Word. And we come to a passage that I struggled with how to open, how to begin. Because I knew getting up here that I could talk to all of you about the importance of husbands and wives. All of us are at least familiar with that institution. We have seen it in action. We have participated in it, many of us. Same for the relationship between parents and children. All of us are the, parent, are the children of parents somewhere along the line, and all of us kind of knew how that would all work out, even if we still were able to be greatly encouraged and instructed in how we see that institution worked out. But then the third one, first of all, we have kind of been on the same kind of vein for three messages now, so we've kind of got the groundwork laid, so I can't spend a huge amount of time laying a whole bunch of groundwork. But this morning's passage is on servants and masters, slaves and masters. And while many of us have sometimes felt like we are enslaved to one thing or another, the institution is not one that we at least in principle acknowledge much in our society. Thankfully, in Canada, it is illegal. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The global slave trade has not gotten smaller. The global slave trade is bigger now than it ever was in the 17 and 1800s when it was legal in America. So we acknowledge that this is still very much the reality for many people around the globe. But how do I deal with a passage from Scripture that admittedly was a favorite of the slave owners? During the American Civil War, people finally stood up and acknowledged the violation of human rights and dignity that it was to buy and sell people. This practice could not continue to exist in light of the teachings of Scripture. Or could it? As humanity has done for millennia, those who have defended evil and wicked practices found ways to twist Scripture and to ground the legitimacy of their position somehow in the Bible. 
And yet, as we look at this passage, this passage seems to require less gymnastics than we would expect of such a wicked institution. So we're going to look at this morning's passage. You'll see what I mean. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9 is what we're going to be reading. But again, we will read verse chapter 5, verse 21, because it is that pivotal, pivotal verse in understanding this passage. So 521 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then down to verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. As you can probably imagine, and as you can probably see, my issue here is that Paul is what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't take this letter, take this moment to go, Masters, release your slaves because slavery is wrong and God hates it. Why not? Isn't slavery wrong? Doesn't God hate it? Paul could have been the new Moses leading the slaves of the Roman Empire out of slavery. And yet he did not. I wrestled with this. And in doing so, I was doing some reading and Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, who is a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrestled with the same question. Should Paul tell the slaves to rebel, he says? Could he write an emancipation proclamation? When we think through this issue, New Testament writers simply could not outright condemn slavery. The disastrous results of previous slave rebellions would have been etched in their minds. The one that we are probably most familiar with just from popular culture is the Spartan slave rebellion, which ended in the slaughter of many, many thousands of people, and the slaves continued to be slaves, so it didn't accomplish its goal. Further, to whom would such a directive be pointed? To the pagan masters? They do not place themselves under God's law and are not a part of his kingdom program. Paul's exhortations to them would be meaningless. What about to the slaves? They are powerless to bring about their own freedom, apart from overt actions, rebellion, or running away. Further, such actions hardly comported with the gospel. Changes to take place from the inside out, not from the imposition of social structures. The one exception to this had to do with the ultimate allegiance and worship. Civil obedience was always encouraged when it came to having to choose between Christ and Caesar. So if Paul is not leading the slaves to freedom as the new Moses, then what do we make of his instructions regarding slaves and servants and masters? And I want you to hear me clearly. The Bible does not condone slavery. 
just as the Bible does not condone the practice of polygamy. But the Bible is God's holy word to mankind, to God's perfect, perfect creation now corrupted. Mankind has been enslaving one another since the fall, just as men have been taking multiple wives since the fall. And God speaks to his people. The audience of this passage are people in time. They are people in particular situations and cultures. Why does he not just outright prohibit it here? I don't know. I can see where God's going with this and how he has used it with my 2020 historical hindsight. But one day I want to ask him, why not just outright put an end to it then and there? But he does lay out the groundwork for the demise of slavery in the gospel. This passage that we're looking at, and many others throughout the New Testament, translates the Greek word doulos. And the ESV, in its kind of translation strategy, translates that word doulos variously as bondservant, slave, or servant. And they're trying to identify these uh, this translating committee is trying to identify that there is nuance. There was nuance to the cultural practice of human servitude. Were they simply property to be traded? Sometimes. Were they people who owed a debt and committed to a contract for a certain number of years to pay off their debt? Sometimes. Were they people who wanted to advance their social station by selling themselves into slavery to someone of even higher social station. Sometimes. It was quite common for people to sell themselves into slavery to Caesar because who wouldn't want to be a slave in the emperor's care? But speaking of this concept of servitude in Roman culture, Dr. Gavin Ortland, he was particularly looking at this passage, he says, we typically think of race-based chattel slavery in which the slave is the property of the master and lacks any legal rights. And that kind of slavery, he says, is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. And it is not, however, what is in view in these texts. Household slavery which, remember, these three passages, the husbands, wives, uh, parents, children, and masters, slaves, it's referencing the whole household. So household slavery is what he's looking at. And these household slaves were often either prisoners of war who otherwise would have been killed in battle, or those engaged in the repayment of debts. Such servants often had contract lengths. They had a measure of autonomy. They could work on the side and buy their own freedom. And we imagine the 17th and 18th century American slavery where slaves were property to be treated and used as their master saw fit. And that did happen in that day, but that is not what he is talking about with household slaves here. But I'm not up here to give a 
lecture on the scriptural ethic of slavery, nor am I up here to defend any kind of slavery, regardless of its type or flavor. I do, however, feel that it's necessary that we, as we come to this passage, understand, at least in part, the circumstances of the ones to whom Paul is writing. The audience of a passage, and this is something as we study scripture ourselves, the audience of a passage will have a great impact on our understanding of the passage. Take a look and go, who is this being written to? Passages like this one, like what we looked at today, have been used to defend slavery. But Paul is not condoning or prescribing slavery. He's addressing a community in which slaves did exist. And as such, he gave these slaves, these Christian slaves, real, tangible instruction as to how the Word of God intersects with their lives, then and there, where they were. They're not left out of the loop or forgotten, as slaves almost always were. Paul says this gospel is for you as well, and it has bearing on your lives as slaves. How you do your job as a slave, this is what God would have you do. So that introduction being made, let's first look at the instruction being given to these doulos, these bond servants or slaves. In light of their submission to Christ, remember this is all in light of our submission to Christ, they are commanded, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. One thing that is unique about this slave-master dynamic of the household, as I was looking at it, this is the one household human institution that Paul addresses here that, is, that does not have its roots directly in the created order. Husband, wife, parent, child, that is all explicit in God's design. But slavery, human slavery as we've established, is against God's created order. And yet it was a reality of the day. And that's why I believe that Paul gives into re-rounding things. For many of you who grew up in catechisms and the like, if I were to ask you what is the chief end of man, many of you would answer to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the primary purpose and function of our lives as human beings. When God created mankind, all man's life was to be oriented towards the glorification and magnification of their God. All of our actions, all of our service, all of our recreation, all of our procreation, all of our beings are designed to be used in service of our Lord God. When Job is complaining before God, he brings his complaints and God answers in Job 41, and Job 41.11, God says this, Who has first given to me that I should repay? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Are we under the whole heaven? 
We as human beings are the greatest part of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation, the only part of God's creation to bear his image. And yet we are his creation. We are his. One of the failings of mankind is our desire to replace the creator with the created. We exchange God for something, anything else. And this has played out in the master-servant dynamic. Like I said earlier, that slave-master dynamic of the household is that one human institution that Paul addresses here that doesn't have its roots in the created order. And I use that word human institution intentionally because humans were never meant to be lord over one another. But there was always meant to be one lord over all humans. So we have taken the created order, which was we are slaves of God, we are devoted wholly into bringing him glory, and instead put human in that place. Your job is to serve me. Your job is to glorify me. Your job is to make me look good and take care of me. We were designed by God, each one of us, to be servants. The problem is we've messed up the question of who gets to be master and thereby which master should be served. And if you have any questions about the scriptural author's perception of their position in God's authority structure, just take, take a moment and look through the New Testament and look at the first verse of just about the majority of the epistles. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1, 1, 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Sensing a pattern here? Anybody have a guess as to what Greek word Paul and Timothy and James and Peter and Jude all used to describe themselves? Doulos. Same word. To be a servant, a slave to Christ, is no shame for these great men of faith. And it is no shame for us. So we have the audience of this passage, slaves and servants and bondservants, whatever you call them or whatever their official title was, they are getting instructions on what it means to be a servant. And ultimately what it means to be an earthly servant is that you pursue the very thing that you were created for, which is to be a servant of God. And part of that does mean submission to earthly authorities that God has put in place over you. Each one of us over the last few years have probably become much more intimately familiar with Romans 13.1 and 1 Peter 2.13-15 than we ever thought we'd be. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who are evil and praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God placed Nero, the emperor who burned Christians as candles. God placed the harsh slave owners. God placed Justin Trudeau and Daniel Smith in parish tongue. God has placed every earthly authority according to his perfect will. And even though many human authorities, and I, I would say all human authorities, have failed in their ability to rightly exercise their role and their job as authority figures, even though they've all failed, the submission of Christ's followers to these human institutions is still expected. It's still commanded insofar as they're also able to remain obedient to God's commandments. That is the one caveat to all of this. If God has put people in authority over you, you are to obey them insofar as you can still follow what I've commanded you in my word. And another feature of this obedience to earthly authorities, and I'm kind of expanding this out to include most earthly authorities because the principles are the same, is that this obedience is to be much more than just a begrudging compliance. To obey our earthly masters and for these servants to obey their earthly masters is a matter of both worship and evangelism. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Don't miss that. Paul makes their earthly obedience and the heart behind that obedience an issue of worship. If it is God's will that we should obey the authorities that he has set in place, and it is, then we are to do so as though we are obeying the Lord himself. And that seems so counterintuitive and so strange to us. Why would the way we in our context obey our bosses at work or these authority figures or political leaders... Why would that matter, especially when these are people who don't even believe in God anyways? Why should I have to obey him? He doesn't even know who the real Lord of the universe is. Most obvious and the least satisfying, usually, answer is because I said so. We dealt with this in the parents and children question. Why do we do what God has told us to do? Because he's told us to do it. Ultimately, that's the answer. But, again, God does not leave us there. He gives us an entire body of truth to undergird this commandment. You remember that interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees about paying taxes? In Mark's account, it goes like this. They sent him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
dangerous words. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? He said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things God, the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. Think about this test of Jesus. If it had gone otherwise, had Jesus taken that time to speak out against unfair or illegitimate taxes, or had he just declared the truth that all things belong to God? Both good things to talk about, both right things to speak, this interaction would have ended very differently. At that moment, Jesus would have been snapped up by the centurions that we know that they would have had waiting in the wing. But given this wise and winsome answer that Jesus gave, instead, it led to what? Worship. They marveled at this man, the Son of God. And had Paul spoken this equally true, and this is where I'm getting to my understanding of why Paul didn't just take the new Moses role on here. Had Paul spoken this equally true word about the wickedness of slavery, inciting a rebellion, the emancipation of slaves, all of these are objectively good things. We want to see this happen. This small group of followers of the way, as they called themselves, this tiny religious sect that was just kind of starting to gain ground, it would have been stomped out before it even made it past its beginnings. God had a far bigger plan for the church and far more long-minded plan for the church than we could ever have envisioned. Even if it had led to the emancipation of the slaves in Rome. Okay, so those slaves get emancipated and they find new slaves and it kind of continues on and then down the road when it comes to 17th, 18th century North America this word would have had very little traction to do what it did. God's word became a central element of the freeing of slaves in North America. So instead of coming out right and saying, slavery is wrong, Paul teaches an ethic that was totally counter-slavery, expounding an ethic that was entirely contrary to the whole worldview of slavery, and yet did so in a way that was winsome and managed to avoid being inflammatory. What did Paul say that was so subversive and provocative? Read verses 8 and 9. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And at first glance, you read that and it seems innocent enough, maybe not with my emphasis added, but it was innocent enough that it was tolerated. I don't know if you, some of you know this, but 
in the days of American slavery, they printed a specific Bible for slaves. Printed in 1807, they called it Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. That was its title. It was a heavily edited King James Bible. There was no extra material included in there. They didn't put in anything that wasn't already there. But they did redact a whole bunch. It got rid of about 90% of the Old Testament. And about half the New Testament. Got rid of all of the Psalms that talked about liberation or hope for the oppressed. Got rid of the book of Revelation entirely. Moses' whole interaction with the freeing of the slaves was definitely out. And yet I was able to find a copy online, and I checked, and this passage somehow managed to remain untouched. Apparently the editors of this version didn't see any issues here, but herein were contained seeds that eventually sprouted into the total abolition of slavery in North America. And that seed was that bondservant or free, all mankind, regardless of station, stand equal before the throne of God. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what color your skin is, doesn't matter where you stand in the social structure, we all stand equal before the Lord. And that's in here. He who is both their master and yours is in heaven as there is no partiality with him. Whether he is bondservant or free, it doesn't matter. Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. What hopeful and invigorating was oppressed. How could a Christian slave or any believer who is being oppressed ever begin to live in submission to a wicked slave owner, to a wicked oppressor? How could they live lives that are described in these pages that absolutely reek of the aroma of self-sacrifice and a greater hope than this life? Well, in Romans 12, Paul instructs the brethren, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is hope for vindication in the case of the captives and the oppressed. There is reward for faithful servants, even the unappreciated and even the abused. That doesn't mean that we are just lapdogs who sit there and take the abuse that is meted out to us and come right back for more the next day, but it does mean that if we are in a situation where we face persecutions or trials or mistreatment or even enslavement of any kind, but especially for the sake of the gospel, we can still act in such a way that respects, honors, and submits to God's chosen authorities while still remaining faithful to his word, and we don't necessarily have to flee those situations 
instead using them to display the strength of the gospel in the face of wickedness. Do you have a boss who is utterly wicked and uses his business as a platform for wickedness and refuses to do anything by the books and fill in the blank here. Most of us have known someone like that somewhere along the way. You don't have to say, that's it, I quit. I don't want any part of this. But if he asks you to, I need you to fudge the numbers here, well, all of a sudden you have a platform for the gospel that you wouldn't have had if you'd just walked away. If you are living in a country that is under the authority of people who do not acknowledge Christ, do not acknowledge anything to do with the gospel, and they give you a command, we have to be very cautious as to how to handle that because we don't just want to walk away. Don't want to just say, I'm not doing it. We say, we are doing everything we can to follow the commands that are in here. But we're also doing everything we can to follow and honor and obey the authorities that God has placed over us. I don't need to go too far to give you a real-world example of that. And I also don't need to go too far to say there is a huge wide spectrum of how that was walked out. And I'm not saying one was right or one was wrong. Some were definitely right or wrong just by virtue of extremes, but one of the advantages of remaining in some of these situations is the opportunity to share the gospel. And this walks a razor's edge both ways. Too far one way and we condemn the oppressed to remain oppressed and have no inclination or hope for freedom. We say, Stay where you are, be where you are, and just take it. That's not what we're saying. Then to go, we aren't saying, we're not trying to incite people to rebellion and contentiousness that will ultimately harm our ability to have any kind of witness before. Buck off every authority and just tell them where they can we're not just here to tell everyone else on planet Earth to pound sand. But we're also not here to tell people, just go along with the narrative. There is a middle road. And the key to this is it's not rebellion or escape that is hope for the oppressed. It is not, okay, I'm going to get out of this job, or it's not, I'm just going to kind of duck my head and continue through. That's not the hope. A personal and eventually a gradually growing circle of commitment to the reordering of human submission, not to man. Why were slaves to submit to their masters? Was it to make their own lives easier because then they wouldn't be beaten disobeying their masters? No. Was it to make their masters whole bunch of money so their masters would like them more? No. They were to do so out of their own reverence for Christ. They were to do so for the glory of God. That was to be their focus. 
And as they did so, as their hearts, even in their oppression, were humbled before the Lord, serving faithfully to God's glory, even serving wicked masters, God did his work, which is to change the hearts of men. You remember the story of Joseph going from slave to imprisoned, disgraced slave to being vice-regent of all Egypt? Did he do this by his own scheming and conniving? Did he do this by railing about his opinions on Egyptian slavery and how they were being treated? No, he remained faithful. He exercised his gifts that God had given him in whatever situation he was in to the glory of God. And God orchestrated that he would shape the fate of nations, even as an imprisoned slave, for the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That was God's doing. And God would have been just as just and just as right to leave Joseph sitting in that prison until he died there. And Joseph would have been just as right spending the entire rest of his life living and acting in that prison as one who would glorify God even there. But God changed the hearts of the people. Obedience to our earthly authorities, obedience of these slaves and servants and bondservants to their earthly masters was and is both a matter of worship and evangelism. Worship in that our obedience is first to Christ and then to the authorities he has placed over us as though he was the one who has commanded it because he has. We read earlier about the importance of obedience to Christ and to his commandments and if we love God then we will obey his commands and this is one of his commands. So it is an act of to obey even in these situations. It's a matter of evangelism in that as we serve our earthly masters for the glory of the one true heavenly master, God shows even those in authority over us his character and the character of those in his kingdom. People should be excited when they get a Christian as an employee. They shouldn't just be, well, they're going to ask for Sundays off. Well, maybe they'll ask for Sundays off, but they'll work their tail off the other six days of the week. But they will honor and obey the commandments of these earthly authorities, even if they don't necessarily like it, as long as I don't push that line. Have you ever traveled to a new country and within very short order, of getting off the plane or out of the vehicle, you kind of look around and you go, I'm not in Kansas anymore. You know, okay, I'm in a very different place. Something about the way that the people act or just the way that society is there is very different. And you get off and go, wow, this this is not home. And then very shortly thereafter, or maybe even before that, before you recognize you're not at home, they look at you and go, you're not from here. Maybe you speak differently. Maybe your customs are strange. I went and visited my sister in New York City and 
try hailing a cab as a Canadian? <laughs> you just kind of wave at them as they drive past you? And people look at you and they kind of, some of them feel bad for you and will like, <laughs> come, <laughs> I'll get you a cab, but most of them just ignore you because that's what you do in a big city. Maybe your customs are strange. Maybe their customs are strange. Maybe the social mores don't work together, but you know that they are different and they know that you are different. That should be how our lives look. The way that we live in our situations where we're under authority of someone else, particularly of a non-believer, I mean, we should be different. That's a common theme throughout the New Testament. They will know that we're Christians by our love for one another. And they will also know something of Christ by the way we serve with a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. If you tell me to do something and God tells me to do something, the way I do it is probably going to be very different, and it shouldn't be. And when we are faithful, when we love one another, when we serve the way we are to serve, we are often then given a chance to share outright the reason for our hope, why we are the way that we are, why we do what we do, why we are different. As we kind of wrap up here this morning, we need to understand human slavery is abominable. It's terrible. It's wrong. And we as believers should be the first to stand up against it. And it is happening more now than ever. We need to be engaged in all of those actions that are trying to free slaves and captives regardless of why or how they are where they are. But we are not aiming for this goal of just destroying the authorities that are over us. We've seen the result of destroy the authorities. That's our culture today. Smash the patriarchy, smash the authority structures, smash all of it, and you do what's good for you, I'll do what's good for me, and as long as no one gets hurt, well, of course someone's going to get hurt. If I do what's good for me, I might hurt you. And I might just hurt you because you're offended by me living the way that I live. We're all offended by someone else. We're all at war with each other. And that is because we as humans were meant to be led. We are meant to be led, but we are not meant to be led by man. We are meant to be led by God. And the way that we interact and the way that we live under authority structures here on this earth we need to act as ones who are under God's authority because we make terrible leaders for our own souls. These days we submit to our earthly rulers and we look forward to, to the day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. When we hear that loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among us, and we shall be his people, and God himself will be among us. That is the freedom that we are looking forward to. And on that day, the authority structure of the universe will be set right. We will serve the Lord with no intermediaries. No man will need to be in authority over another, because the God-man, God the Son, will be in authority over all, every knee bowed before him. And God will dwell among us, and we will be his people. We have bowed the knee before him in this life.
We pray for that day. We look forward to the time when the only perfect man, God the Son, is shown to be in authority over all, as he always has been, where the Lamb who was slain to make atonement for the sins of each of his people rules and reigns forever. But in the meantime, we remain here on this earth. We remain with the purpose of enjoying God and glorifying him. And one of the ways that we do that is to live and act as ones committed to the Lord and his commands. And part of that is to obey our earthly authorities, even the wicked ones, unless we are commanded to break God's commandments. We can still advocate for change. We can still, even as Paul did, work within the structures of that society to see these evils be stamped out. We can be angry at the injustices of the world, and we push back into causes of those who need defending. But our hope is not in our own strength. Our hope is not in our own ability to get out from under these wicked authorities. It's not in our social activism. It's not in world leaders or governments. It is in the return of the Lord and his rule and reign that is coming. So today we remain fellow doulos, fellow slaves, fellow bondservants of Christ, fellow sons and daughters in the household of God. So let's live differently. Let's serve our human authorities differently. And ultimately, may we be a people known to serve first and foremost the original, eternal, and impartial master of creation, the Lord God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I ask that you would join with me in a word of prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we take a look at our world and we see so much wickedness. We take a look at our world and we shake our head and go, how can we continue to live and serve and act within structures and authorities that are so against you? We can do so because you have commanded us to. We can do so because you have promised to strengthen us as we do so. We can do so holding fast to your commandments and your word, knowing that even if we are called to disobey these commandments because someone commands us contrary to your word, that you will give us the words to say, you will give us the path and the ability to speak according to your word and to live according to your word and maybe we will be punished for it but our hope is not here on this earth the hope of those slaves was not on this earth O lord and we pray that you would help us to see that for the sooner we see that our hope is not here but it is with you we become able to live according to your commands O god so work that in our hearts Grind that into our souls that we are yours and yours alone. And Lord, we ask that you would give us strength. Give us eyes to see and reveal by your word our next steps. How we can best follow you. 
And Lord, as we go from here, may we be people who worship you with our actions, even wherever you have placed us throughout the week. We thank you for these things. We thank you for the opportunity to worship together, and we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, who is the only reason we have a hope and a future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.